Welcome to the Hospitality Maverick podcast with me, Michael Tinkser. We at Hospitality Mavericks are here to inspire leaders to create heart-centered and profitable businesses from the inside out, the kind to both employees and customers love and support. Thanks to BizSimply for sponsoring this episode as our show partner. And BizSimply is the all-in-one HR, workforce management, road and operations software designed and built by hospitality experts to make every shift run like clockwork. And we join forces to help the industry to find new ways to become even more innovative in how we lead our people, how we operate, to how we grow our businesses, to how we serve our customers. Together, we want to share strategies and tools that can make the industry thrive long-term, not just survive. There's nothing really amazingly great that happens quickly. Only bad things. Hurricanes, earthquakes, pandemics. But good things take a long time to make happen. So if you look at your business like you're building an ecosystem or you are starting a farm, it's not like you're going to have the best farm in the county in the first six months. I mean, it's impossible. Like it takes years to build the soil. It takes years of mistakes and learning and trial and error and everything else to get it to where you want to go. So I think that when we understand that, we can be much more patient and we're not looking for headlines. It's really working for yourself and going after things you believe in, in the hopes others will also believe in them and patronize your business. This is Ari Weinswey, co-founder of Singerman's Community of Businesses, which is located in Ann Arbor, just outside Detroit, US. Anyone that has listened to the show over the last couple of years has probably heard me referring to Singerman's and how they have trailblazed a different way of building business from the early days of inception. And that's not only go for food and hospitality, but also think in the wider context of many other industry, they just found a different way that seems to work. Because they build a business to deliver great business results, but also makes positive impact on people, society and an environment. And it's worth mention, they have just celebrated its 40th year's birthday. So a big congrats to the team at Singerman. That's incredible work. If you think about the lifetime on an average business in today's environment. So I'm super excited and grateful for spending time with Ari again, talking about how they over the years have been building a great business. We'll dive into one of his books from the series, Good Leading Part 1 to 4. And we will also dive into their own experiences, but also what they have learned from teaching other companies how to build a great company. Ari shares the power of having a clear vision for a better future for the business, but also for all the stakeholders that's connected with the business and how they work with their beliefs and how they feed into a stronger culture and how culture combined with great system determines the quality of the employee and customer experience and what the role of a CEO slash founder is on this journey. Before you tune in, please sign up for a weekly newsletter packed with more Maverick insights, strategies and tools. Find the link in the show notes or visit hospitalitymavericks.com. I would highly advise you to grab pen and paper. There's so many great insights and learnings about how to build a great company in this conversation. Enjoy. Enjoy. 
today we have one of the founders of a business that's by the Inc. magazine has been named as the coolest small company in America. And I often mention him here on the show as a company to get inspired by if you want to build a business to both deliver results, but also positive impact on people, communities, and the end, the planet. And it's Singermans. And uh, I'm so grateful, Larry, you said yes to come to the show again. So welcome. Happy to do it. And uh, last time we talked about how you lead yourself. We were, at that point, we thought we were in the last phases of the pandemic. And it was really important that people got, you know, tools to help to, to manage themselves, but also because I believe we needed to talk about leadership first because great companies often build by leaders that's really good at managing themselves is my observation. Um, and today we'll be talking a bit about your 40 years journey, you and Paul's journey building Singermans and together with the team and all the great things you have learned. And you had just celebrated the big 4-0, isn't that right? Yep, that was uh, two months ago was our 40th anniversary, kind of crazy. Yeah, and, and, and how was that looking back four decades? Well, personally, I'm not that hung up on it. Uh, it's just, you know, in my, my worldview, it's just another day. Uh, like 39 years, 364 days isn't any different than the 365th. So, and I try to be appreciative, as I know you do every day of everything and so, it, I mean, it's good, but it's no different than any other day of working really hard to be appreciative. So that said, uh, it's a long time in an industry that you and I know all too well. I don't know what the numbers are, 85% close in the first 18 months or something like that. So it's almost a miracle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can say that. It is old. It would be interesting to hear because I almost see it. And if you can, you know, keep going and, and the way your structure is from an ownership point of view, we'll talk about today. It's almost the level of alchemist in it and how, how you do it. But to people that haven't heard about Singermans, haven't been on your website, haven't been to an arbor, can you just give a little intro what Singerman is and that the story that goes 40 years back to the top highlights in a way. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> well, the story, of course, goes more than 40 years because I wasn't born 40 years ago. But uh, I grew up in Chicago, came to Ann Arbor, which is where the University of Michigan is. So for those in the UK, maybe we could compare it to Cambridge, uh, something along those lines in the context of being a good university town. Uh, I studied Russian history, as you know, and a particular focus, as you also know, on anarchism, which we may or may not get into, but that's fine. There's a lot in the books about it. And uh, after graduating uh, with my degree, there is, of course, nothing one can do with a history degree, which was not surprising or depressing. I was supposed to go back and get more degrees. But anyway, mostly I just knew we're going to talk about vision, I'm sure, during our conversation. And when I finished school, I had no vision at all. I had only what uh, David White, the English-Irish, uh, now American writer and poet, calls the via negativa, which is where you're clueless about where you would like to go, but you're very clear where you do not want to go. And I wouldn't really recommend that as a life path, but it's better than nothing because at least you could eliminate some of the options. So I knew I, would, I really, really, really didn't want to go home. Uh, I was in hindsight, uh, we'll talk about the natural laws of business, I think, and uh, uh, natural law number four on the list is people do their best work 
when they're part of a great organization, right? And I think conversely, people do their worst work when they're part of an unhealthy organization. And, you know, in our context, we're going to look at that as a business, but I think it's also true of communities. And so in, in a good way, I part of who I am is informed by staying in Ann Arbor and not by going back to the suburbs of Chicago and getting caught up into that life that I'm glad I didn't get caught up in. But anyway, 44 years ago, I think this week, Michael, uh, I, well, I took a job as a dishwasher. I had applied twice before already, first as a server and then as a busboy, uh, but I didn't get hired uh, at a restaurant here in Ann Arbor that my college roommate was already a waiter at. And uh, I took the dish job finally because I said I'd do anything. I was running out of money. Uh, unlike a lot of people that you probably interview, I had no life ambition to be in food. My mother wasn't a good cook. I didn't grow up with all these great family recipes. I never had some big business dream. In fact, I had very negative beliefs about business because it mostly seemed like it did bad things to people. I didn't even know what a restaurant business, what the restaurant business was. So I really just lucked out uh, for that. And then I also lucked out because 44 years ago this week, I met Paul Saginaw, who you know about, who's been my partner in all this from the beginning. He had just moved over from one of their other restaurants where he had been the bar manager and he took a promotion to be the general manager. And, uh, and then also Frank Carollo, who uh, was a line cook at that time and went on to be the partner in our bakery. Uh, who just retired a year and a half ago. So, uh, so it really, you know, it's one of those funny days that seems like an, a non day, uh, but turned out to, to really alter my life. So anyways, I, I, in, in the context of your audience, I prepped and cooked and ran kitchen. So all back of the house originally. And then, uh, Paul left about halfway through the four years that I worked for that restaurant group and opened a little fish market here in Ann Arbor, which is still one of the best in the country. And he and I stayed friends. And in the, in the context of what I now write about, uh, I would say by the fall of 81, it had become clear to me that I, I had what I would now call a good job, but it wasn't really good work. So it was perfectly fine. There was nothing wrong with it. The pay was fine, but it was just less and less inspiring and less and less uh, likely that where they wanted to go because they didn't write out a vision, but where it sounded like they were going was where I knew I didn't want to go. So November 1st, 1981, I gave two months notice, unsure of what would be next. Paul, magically, uh, not knowing I had given notice, called me two or three days later, and we, he and I had talked here and there over our years of friendship about opening a deli because in Detroit, where he grew up, which is about 45 minutes an hour east of here, you could get good deli food. And in Chicago, where I grew up, four hours west of here, you could get it, but you couldn't get it here. So somehow within like a week, we decided we would open. And then uh, somehow four and a half months later, we were open. And um, so March 15th, uh, 1982 is when we opened. Two employees, 1,300 square feet. I'll let you translate that in the show notes or whatever you do into <laughs> meters because I forget how to do it in my head. And uh, 29 seats and 25 sandwiches on the menu. And that's that's how we started. And then uh, 40 years and two months later, 
Uh, I don't know how many we have, 12 businesses here in town. We have, as I'm sure we'll get into, a very different model. So we only do everything once. So there's still only one deli, but we have a bakery, as I alluded to before. I'm sitting now in our training business, Zing Train. We have a restaurant that's a small Korean restaurant with traditional Korean food, candy company where we make artisan candy bars, coffee roasting, creamery. Uh, Zingerman's Roadhouse is a pretty big 200 seat restaurant that's all regional American food. We have an uh, 1830s uh, barn and farmhouse that we renovated to do weddings and events and stuff. And then our mail order business and then our is our biggest. And then our smallest is our food tours business, which was a very bad business to be in during the pandemic. But uh, Christy, who's the partner, is actually in Europe right now leading a tour. I think that's all of them. And so we'll do we'll do about seventy three million dollars this year collectively, uh, which is about what we would have done the year of the pandemic had it not happened. So we fell and then gradually have worked our way back to where we would have been before all that. Uh, that that's great news to hear, uh, Ari. And and I think what's really interesting with what you just said there, I was almost thinking it's a bit like uh, you probably read The Alchemist. Uh, yes, I just wrote about it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I didn't even know that. I don't really follow you. But actually, it's very interesting by the coincidence of things happens. It's like you see these things, you see these stones of that you need to go this way and you go that way and, and things happen for you. And I think actually the, often the best things in life are like that. You get very clear signs that you need to do something, either because it's not the right thing or you can feel this time for, for shifting. So so I guess from, from day one, you and Paul knew what you didn't want to have. And has that, you know, if you had to explain what normally what called purpose today, did you have a very clear sense of that from day one, what the purpose of Singerman's was? I, I guess you didn't know you wanted to be 12 businesses, Hundreds of employees. No, 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 not at all. So, uh, so the new pamphlet I have out as of yesterday uh, is all. It's called the story of visioning at Zingerman's, and uh, it's all about this story. So, when we opened, we didn't call it a vision, and we didn't write it down the way we do now, but we had one because, as you know from reading the book, it's a natural law of business that everybody who made something great, I'm not saying we're so great, but that made something meaningfully great happen, had a vision, like they had something in their head. You know, you had one for this podcast. Uh, people have one for their restaurant or their bar or their hotel or whatever it is that they're doing. So ours in hindsight would have included six key areas. First, we wanted something really unique. So we didn't want to just go, oh, we're going to copy New York or we're going to copy Detroit or we're going to copy Chicago. Uh, second, we wanted great food. And we, third, we wanted great service. Fourth, we wanted a great place for people to work. Uh, fifth, we were pretty adamant from the beginning and still to this day, we would do it in a very down to earth setting. So especially at that time, I mean, there were a lot of high end quotes, food places, retail places, let's say in New York that were very like, you know, you had a, I'm sure in London, there was the same uh, in the old days, and we wanted it to be much more accessible so that whether you knew about artisan cheese or not, 
you would feel comfortable, we would help you feel comfortable to try it and make your own decisions in an informed and caring way. And then last but not least, we were very clear from the beginning that we didn't want to franchise, we didn't want to open multiple units. Uh, I'm not judging those who do. I just, for me, it's much more meaningful to do something really amazing that people would come to from all over the world eventually and remember it in a meaningful way. And uh, so that's that's what we set out to do. But I, we had no idea about any of this other stuff. I didn't think I'd live to be 30. <laughs> uh, what about uh, you said something that you wanted to make something that's unique and what actually makes Singerman so unique if you you know never been in contact with you what what is people saying the first time they they come to you well I think what made it unique in 1982 of course is not all what makes it unique now so in 1982 it was very unusual, at least in the States, to combine the idea of doing sandwiches and also selling retail food. Uh, today, it's there's probably no supermarket in the world that doesn't have that combination. But at the time, people thought, people in the restaurant world thought we were nuts uh, for having retail, and the retail people thought we were nuts uh, for, for, uh, for, uh, doing the opposite so anyway so that was odd and then we had all these traditional jewish foods that paul and i had grown up with but we were also selling uh cured ham and bacon and you know things that in the jewish world were like very taboo uh so just combining all of that together was unusual and and like i said doing it in a very down-to-earth way uh was unusual so and then for this part of the world too like in hindsight, I, I realized a few years ago that we were part of a culinary revolution in the U.S., but it's not like we were trying to be part of it, and it's not like we started it, but we were there. So, I mean, today there's whatever, goat cheese in every upscale supermarket in the U.S., but at the time there were only two goat cheeses you could get in the whole country from France. One was Boucheron and one was Montrachet, and in Ann Arbor there were probably more because of the university than most towns of 100,000 in the U.S., but it wasn't like there was hundreds of people walking around all day going, I need goat cheese. So so all of those things were, were unique at the time. I mean, I think now what I would say, since much of that has been done, I, I don't know with the same quality level that people claim to have isn't always what they have. But I think now it's really about the energy. It's about the ethos. It's about the philosophy it's about the way we work together and all of the things that come from that. So, I mean, there's dozens of them, but the visioning process, open book management, uh, the work around dignity, the work around involving people, not from a cliche diversity inclusion standpoint, which is very important also in a meaningful standpoint, but because we've always been about trying to get people involved in the organization and, that continues to this day, our work around energy management, uh, all, all of these and many more, uh, I think, make the organization different. Employee ownership, I should add that, that, that we're doing more and more of. Would you say, for, because what I was hearing as you were talking through that, Ari, is like when you when you set out to do a business and you sometimes, and when I think about other people I've interviewed around the same kind of 
topics is that like in the early days you do something that's counterintuitive and actually helps you to build a great foundation because when everybody says you're nuts that's probably the best place to be sometimes yeah well i i yes fully agreed uh i mean when we opened the general wisdom was we were doomed to fail and we would be out of business in a year ann arbor had 10 12 delis closed and it was a considered a bad neighborhood and people, you know, there's still no parking to till today, et cetera, et cetera. And before cell phones, it was very hard to find because people didn't have a map in their pocket all the time. But anyway, you know, six, seven years later, we were, everybody thought we were brilliant and geniuses and this pattern has been repeated all the time. So yes, absolutely. Uh, and then also in the context, I just wrote about money uh, for the e-news this week. And I have sort of long held this realization that businesses that start in difficult times tend to be more resilient. People who start in good times often get deluded into thinking it's them that's making it all happen. <laughs> and I don't mean we don't have an important role to play, but there is good fortune, a community, you know, and I don't mean it's all luck. There's a ton of work, obviously, but at the same time, it's easy to get the belief that you're so great. And I don't think we've ever had that belief. And I think starting in extremely difficult economic times, for us, that's the norm. And I, I was reflecting, uh, I just read Morgan Housel's book, Psychology of Money, which is very good. Uh, and he was pointing out like when you grew up, as well as your family beliefs around money have an enormous impact on your own, right? So uh, it's a longer conversation, but in 1982, when we opened, we, the U.S. was coming, somewhat coming down, but I mean, it had been like the highest inflation in 50 years. So for me, the current inflation is annoying, but it's not freaking me out. I mean, it seems like it's kind of normal, you know, and it's the absence of inflation that seems like the aberration. But for as, as Morgan Housel pointed out, people who were born in the 90s have never experienced inflation. So it's really scary and crazy. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. It doesn't seem like that big a deal. <laughs> you know, so uh, anyway, I think that when we started, it was a very hard time to start in a sense. But to your point, that made us in some ways healthier and we were in better shape. We were not born. We were not born with silver spoons, although certainly in the context of what we understand socially today, you know, we had some advantages. We were from middle-class families. We, you know, we're not of color in quotes. We, you know, we're educated. So, I mean, all of those advantages certainly helped us in hindsight. We didn't, I wouldn't have said I understood that at the time. It's not like we got handed a lot either because we didn't, but, you know, we knew our way around the world at least. I, I mean, and that's super interesting. That leads us very well to the next thing is that, okay, there is some, there's some circumstances that happens often when you build something great. If it's a business, it's what's everything. It's like something you have to fight a bit for it, I think. But, and then, then in the book and in, in all your other great materials and in your newsletter, you often talk about people come to ask you, so what, what is the one thing I need to do to build a business? Can you give me like... Well, the best thing is to listen to your, pod, is to listen to your podcast. So that I think that's, that's without question the key secret. Um, <laughs> thank you. Thank answer, you, Ari. <laughs> yeah. Well, beyond, beyond that, uh, you know, the best answer that I've come to give is to stop looking for the one thing. Uh, because 
my anarchist studies helped me to understand that hierarchical thinking is not very helpful uh, and that uh, that we would do better to uh, understand ourselves as, a, as you know, I've been writing more and more about as an ecosystem. Uh, and if you ask a sustainable farmer what the number one thing they have to do, there is no one thing. Like you need the soil to be healthy. You need the right seed variety. You need to water. Pro you know, I mean, it's all important. And, you know, obviously we can't do everything well at once, but we got to understand that everything is influencing us. So the way we treat the dishwasher influences the business, the way the dishwasher treats the server, the servers, you know, all of these things are part of the health of the, or, or, Ill, or lack of health of the ecosystem. So yes to visioning, but yes to customer service and yes to good finance and yes to great food and 150 other things. Yeah, so you're saying it's a complex thing. It's not a one thing. It's an ecosystem of touch point. You need to have to to come together. And I, and that, that and I totally agree with that. That's also what I hear from others. But I, we would, you know, many many people and leaders are always hungry for finding that algorithm to solve everything. They're getting taught that belief by by the industrial model, uh, and and they're getting diluted into thinking there's some great thing that everybody else knows that they don't know but it's really nobody has that magic answer and you know when people act like they do it's really just in hindsight and then assigning credit right so it happens in basketball games it happens in politics it happens you know it's it's just people like later they go well that was the key turning point but the the truth is there were 73 other turning points that allowed you to get to that turning point so People forget of all those things. And anyway, yes, they all come together to create what we have for better and for worse. Yeah, and it's a bit like, uh, I'm sure you you know about Jim Collins and the flywheel effect when he talks about building great companies as well, where there's a lot of small interaction over time that accumulate to, to the force of an organization. Moving a bit on to talk a bit about maybe going deep diving down to see what exactly you do, because I often start with leadership philosophy. You talked a bit about your, your purpose. That's very clear. The the principles around you, and uh, you already mentioned the 12 laws of business. I think it'd be very good for people to understand these 12 laws you've been writing about, but also where you practice in the business as a, a leadership philosophy. It's my perception of it. Well, I think it's it's my belief that anybody who's running a healthy organization is probably doing those 12 living in harmony with those 12 natural laws. Uh, they just don't know it. Uh, as I keep hearing the same themes, uh, you know, from again, great athletes, from musicians, from great leaders in anything, teachers, parents, I mean, they all do those 12 things and not with the, that wording and not with those names, but, that's why I would suggest they're natural laws because it's not a new technique. It's just what you do. So like we have a process to write a vision, but the reality is, like I said earlier, everybody who does something meaningful has a vision and whether that's social change or raising a family uh, or whatever, their, their church or, you know, a punk band it's it's all like you imagine this future that you're going to go for so they're natural things but the problem is it's easy to forget them 
number one. And then typically what happens when we grow is that it, when you're the founder or the initial or early leader, you do them, but the people around you are not doing them because no one taught it to them. And so the gap between their perception, their beliefs, their behavior, and yours gets bigger and bigger, and that creates more and more frustration. And it feels like you're burning out because you're dragging everybody. Whereas if we teach this to everybody, whether either informally or formally or both, then they're, you know, they're doing much the same kind of thing. Does it mean that you all make the same decisions? No, because Paul and I don't make the same decisions, but you're trying to do the right thing, right? So one, one example from the list is that successful organizations, and I would say successful people, and I don't mean the ones who make the most money, but rather the ones who are living the life of their, that they feel really great about, they're all doing the little extra things that everybody else knows they should do, but they don't do because they don't feel like doing them. So if it's an athlete, it's watching more game film and working out more. If it's a parent, it's, you know, spending more time with your kid. It's not like any parent goes, it's a bad idea to spend time with your kid, <laughs> right? It's, it's not like any business owner goes, reading books about business is a waste of time and terrible. It's just, they don't do it, you know? And, and so it's finding ways to get that little extra stuff done, whether it's what everybody listening probably does, picking up the trash from the parking lot, even though everybody else could pick it up too, right? So, you know, and yes, we want systems that push others to do that. And at the same time, it's just the reality that the odds of walking from your car, if you have a car and you drive to work into the back door, front door of your business and not finding something that needs to be picked up is low. You know, do I want to pick it up? No especially in the early days of COVID when everybody's freaking out like me, you know, but so it's the difference is if I just try to do a lot of little extra things, there's only so much I can do. If you have a hundred employees and they all do two little extra things a day is way more than you can do. Even if you can do 20 a day, it's, they're going to do 400 or 200. I mean, so it's, it's going to really make a much bigger difference if we could teach this to everybody. And the interesting thing, as you say, they, lots of great companies will follow these things. And uh, there's a uh, law number 11, which I really like. And also it actually leads me to, to another question as well. It, it generally takes a lot longer to make something great happen than people think. And we come from a world where we have been in business talking about growth, growth, growth. We have to scale, scale, scale. But the outcomes of many of these things has been catastrophic uh, for for, for many people. Well, what is your thought about that? And, you know, your own experience about growth as a business and, you know, 40 years of, of, of building a business. I have come to, again, look at things more like an ecosystem. So in nature, very little, well, there's beauty and joy, like when a bud comes off of a branch or a butterfly lands, but in a bigger way, there's nothing really amazingly great that happens quickly. Only bad things. Hurricanes, earthquakes, pandemics, typhoons, right? But good things take a long time to make happen. Uh, so if you look at your business like you're building an ecosystem or you 
are starting a farm, it's not like you're going to have the best farm in the county in the first six months. I mean, it's impossible. Like it takes years to build the soil. It takes years of mistakes and learning and trial and error and everything else to get it to where you want to go. So I think that when we understand that, we can be much more patient and we're not looking for headlines. I, you know, the, the, the world feeds the desire for the headlines, but the reality is you're no better if you get in whatever, the Guardian, or if you don't. You're no better if people say you're great. You're not really any better than you were the day before. So it's really working for yourself and going after things you believe in in the hopes others will also believe in them and patronize your business. And does that also come back to because I wrote your your newsletter around money as well? Does that come that you know connection or that need we have to think that money equals success or yeah, it's it's I mean that's one of them. I uh, I think also fame can equal success in quotes not for me but for many. Uh, your parents' recognition, you know, I mean we all have some of this. I mean it's. I think the vision, I believe and have experienced that writing a vision helps you get clear on what success means to you. Uh, the money is one example. I mean, it, it doesn't need to be the most important thing. I mean, but, and I'm not judging those for whom it is. It's just understanding that if you're working with that model, it's a set of beliefs that you picked up elsewhere. And if you say that money's the most important thing and that it feels right to you, then awesome, go for it. You know, for me, it's important for the health of the organization and my own health financially at home. But it's like I wrote in the e-news piece, I've never, and that's not a joke. I mean, I've never gotten up in the morning, man, we're going to make so much money today. Like, I just don't really care. I care that we have enough. I care that we pay people ever more. I care that I have savings in the bank so I can sleep at night, et cetera. So I'm not being flip about it or, or, or dismissive about it. It's just, you know, it's, it's like having a nice a car that gets me to work. Like, I don't really care about the car, but I care that I can get to work. So the money does much the same thing. And I don't know if it's the right metaphor, but as you saw, I compared it metaphorically in the ecosystem to minerals in the soil. Like you want them, they're super important because if you don't have them, the plants won't grow. But the reality is also if you pile up a lot of, if you put too much in the soil, it's also unhealthy. And if you extract all the minerals from the soil for your personal gain, nothing will grow behind right and and then if you have like gold interestingly and i didn't put it into the e-news yet but gold best i can tell does nothing in the soil it, it doesn't contribute to anything so it's interesting slash ironic that the, the item that human beings seem to prize the most and put enormous value on has no benefit other than decorative so so we've chosen this exclusively superficial item to place this super high value on, whereas healthy soil on a farm actually has way more value than gold, but we we walk on it without even thinking about it. One of the things I was thinking I was prepared to do is that, that when the 12 laws of business, which really is the foundation for, for, for building a great business, you believe, and 
as I as well, and, and people put a link in the show notes to, so people can go read the blog post about it and, and all the great content you have around the 12 laws. But do they change the way you use them as you, uh, you've just been for around 40 years now? Do you see them change in the organizational life cycle because you have to reinvent yourself on, on that journey? Do the practice of them change or the way you think about them? I think that uh, the beauty of the laws and really most of the processes we use, like visioning, it doesn't tell you what the content is. So it doesn't say what the little extra thing is. It doesn't say how long a long time is. It doesn't say what's in your vision. It just says you need one. And so that allows you to adapt to the moment, to adapt to where you're at in your life, to adapt to your age or the pandemic or whatever, uh, but still live in harmony with those natural laws. So I, th- I, I look at it like gravity. I mean, it, it doesn't really change. Like, right, if I drop something now, it might be my cell phone. 30 years ago, it wouldn't have been my cell phone, but it still goes down whatever I dropped. Yeah, that's, that's super interesting. Um and I think that also leads us to, to the, the thing you talked about before I wanted to go back to. You talk about visioning, having a clear idea about where, where you're heading. And uh, you talk about in the, the book, Building a Great Business, the importance of visionary. You just put out a new pamphlet as well. You just showed me before we started here today uh, where you've actually been back into the, the pamphlet writing about your news learning on visioning. Can you talk a bit about this? Because a lot of companies call this a, an away day and then the the vision is done and the purpose is right. We got the value sorted and the workshop and uh, something sent out into the company and that's it, you know, forgotten about. But can you talk a bit about how you work with that and the process and how you involve people? Yeah. So the visioning, again, it's a natural process. So you're, how old are your kids? Uh, Seven and three. Okay. So they, I'm going to guess already do visioning every day at home. Uh, and you would know better than I do, but they might have made a restaurant in the living room. They might have become superheroes. They might be, I don't know, the prime minister of England or, you know, the the rock singer that they admire or a cartoon character. And the next day they've changed and they have a different vision, right? Yeah, well, well what, what makes me really scared, Ari, is my son Oscar wants to open a restaurant and he's already opened a drive through everything. He's opened any kind of restaurant you can imagine in the in the living room so uh, it's great great for food but you know you're always nervous when your your kids want to do what you've been pursuing your life with (laughs) (laughs) well we'll see what happens but uh so so anyways the the vision like i said it's a natural process i think it's what happens when people are doing their startup they have a vision in their head I, i think that what happens to us over time though is that we it's actually harder to do it again. A lot of what's in this new pamphlet, the story of visioning at Zingerman's is the story of, so we, we did the first vision and we didn't really know it. And it's only because Paul intuitively sensed that we had achieved it and that we were at what I now would call organizational midlife, that we started the work on actually what turned out to be writing a vision. Most organizations don't do that. So as you know, uh, metaphorically, uh, I like to think of the vision as the cathedral that we're working to construct together, right? And so even if you're only here for a little while, how you lay the bricks still makes a big difference in the end result. Even if 
work seems drudgerous in the sense you can still imagine this greater thing, the purpose, whatever that you're working to help make happen. And also it helps you make decisions because you can't build a Frank Lloyd Wright house and a Gothic house on the same piece of land. <laughs> they both have merit, but it's kind of like you do need to decide before you get going which one it's going to be. So when an organization has had some success, it is often the case, as I believe it was with us, that you've basically finished the blueprint for that original vision. Like the cathedral was completed, but the workmen keep coming because they need to get paid. And so they figure out more stuff to do, right? So you built this gorgeous building, but now they're like, well, I don't know, what should we do next? And one's like, oh, my cousin has a pool at his house. Okay, let's, let's do that. Oh, I read an article that adding a second story adds value. Let's do, you know, so like you start to pick and choose based on other people's opinions or whatever. Uh, and uh, uh, it's, it's very unhelpful because the initial elegance, beauty, coherence, and that you had in your heart and your head that were part of your original vision now start to get lost. And this happens all the time. Like somebody started an amazing restaurant. It's awesome. And then in the beginning, like you said, no one wants to help you and everybody thinks you're crazy. Five years later, they're, th I got a, man, this real estate is awesome. I got a great deal. We're going to fund this. We're going to, you know, in, in the U.S., we're going to put you in Las Vegas. We're going to open in New York. We're going to open in Paris. My cousin has a lot of money, you know, like whatever, there's a thousand offers start coming. And then it, the, the decisions are getting made based on opportunities of the moment or problems of the moment and not on a sense of this elegance long-term future that you need to create. So long story short, the visioning process is a way to get back at what we have in our heart. And so we write from the heart, not from the head, if that makes sense. It's essentially free writing if somebody's an English major, which I wasn't, but it's called free writing. You just sit and write and you can't stop to think that screws it up. And what you end up with more often than not, as a first draft at least, will be pretty close to what you imagine. And I don't know if you want to get bigger. You don't have to. I don't know if you want to stay in the same city. I don't know if you want to sell it, go public, open a franchise of 300 units. They're all okay. It's just the key for me in my experience is that it's what's really in your heart. And the interesting thing is that it's not you and Paul that just sit down and, and do this work. You involve people from the organization and it takes a long time to get through the process. It's not a one day thing. It's, 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 it's a period of time. Correct. Um, so, well, it could be done in one day, uh, but the way we choose, so I, I would say that a vision even done autocratically by the leader is better than no vision because at least people know where they're going. Right. So I don't, that's happens to not be the way we work, but, and I would suggest it's better not to work that way. Uh, and part of what I wrote about in the new pamphlet is sort of adding to what you have in the book, which is about the idea of, because you could, you could have a vision that's destructive. And I think we're, we're experiencing that in the world right now in Ukraine, uh, because clearly Putin has a vision. It's not my vision. Uh, it's not your vision. It's probably not anybody's vision that's listening to this. 
but he has a vision and for him it's inspiring not for me he's seemingly clear pretty clearly incorrect but he believed it was strategically sound uh, he didn't write it down but he did communicate it and so in the pamphlet i was like well that's true but it's not what we're trying to do so if you wanted to create a sustainable vision a healthy vision what would be in there and then there's more things like it needs to be about dignity it needs to be have love built into it etc cetera, etc cetera. so we work very inclusively we draft a vision in one form or another in in the form i talked about and then share it through whatever methods we are using at the moment and i've written about this but we share it with other people to get their feedback and i mean there's more nuance and detail to the process but uh the way we do it for an organizational vision we're not rushing we have time you know it might be two years of conversation and whatever because we already have a long-term one that's almost done now we're starting the next one so it's not urgent if you were working urgently to be clear you could do it in two days i mean yeah, the interesting thing is that you work in 10-year visions. Yeah, we, we this one we did for 12. You can do, so visioning, I mean, it's a longer conversation, but it's really a way of being in the world. So uh, the truth is it wouldn't hurt even for you, like to write a vision for each interview that you did and share it with, the person you were interviewing in advance. So at least, and I, I think in your case and mine, like we both have a fairly shared vision in our heads. And so the conversation goes well, but what you're trying to do when you send all those prompts, like a good podcast host that you do is to basically share your vision. So if you were to write a paragraph for it in advance and talk about how each of us felt at the end and how the audience felt when they listened to the, you know, it would help, right? It would take you eight minutes. Maybe you would share it with me. I might say, oh, change this, change that. What would be happening is I, as your interviewee, would be essentially buying in more and more. Yeah, that's a very, very good, very great example there. And in, in an interesting way, I think if you were to share it in the show notes, it would actually inform the way people listen to the podcast. So in, in, interestingly, in this context, I sort of busted myself in a good way as I was working on the not finished drafts of the pamphlet. I realized I should write a vision for the pamphlet. So I did, and I put it in the pamphlet. And it's right in the beginning because that's the point. I tell you what I'm going to do. <laughs> mm. Yeah, and that, and that creates the clarity in an organization. It tells you what, how, how could it look and maybe the journey to that place it's very different than than we thought originally, but we'll get there. Yeah, absolutely. And if I if I share the vision as I do for the pamphlet in the beginning of the pamphlet, and you pick up the pamphlet to look at it, and you read the vision, and you're not interested, it's better if you don't buy it. In the same way, if if you have a vision for your restaurant and somebody's applying for the job, and you share it with them, and they don't like it, they're not a bad person, but it's really a bad fit. Because what they're work, if they're applying for a job as a line cook, they're applying for the job of line cook as they imagine it, which may or may not match yours. <laughs> yeah, and that's really interesting. You just mentioned that because then then we come to the talk about you know values or beliefs or principles. People call them different things. You need to have in place to bring that vision alive. 
and the purpose of the business. How do you approach that? And how do you make sure that you keep these the values and beliefs alive in, in, a, in a business that's grown over years? Well, I think it's, it's like anything else in your life. I mean, it's, it's work, right? So you and I both run, uh, it's, it's work to run. Like it's, and it's not like everybody, I don't know about you, but it's not like every time I go that I really want to go, but I have a self commitment that I'm going to do it. And so I go do it. And I think what keeps it going in the organization are again, any number of things. So one is the formal training. Like, are we teaching it to people? Um, so I teach, which I wrote about uh, in part four of the book and there's a pamphlet on it. I still teach the new staff orientation. I just taught it the other day for context. I didn't say, but we have 700 employees. So, I teach it at least once a month at the holidays when we hire a lot for mail order, much more. Mostly it gets done for the new staff, but the truth is it's equally helpful for me. I get to learn from them. I re-immerse myself in our vision and our values because it's not like I don't know them, but and I'm not religious, but if somebody is, they read the Bible regularly, they already read it a long time ago. Why are they keep rereading it? It's to reground yourself in, in what you're supposed to be doing. And so when we reground ourselves in the vision and the values regularly and the mission, it's embarrassing not to go do it, right? So it helps keep me focused on all of that. So that's, that's one way. Then certainly the modeling that we do as leaders makes a difference. So if my work behavior is not aligned with our values, it's not going to work. <laughs> And then, you know, we need to have some ways to uh, to recognize and reward what's happening. So I don't mean we have to give people 10 euros or $10 or 10 pounds every time they do something good. But if we don't even notice that they do something good after a while, what's the point? So being mindful and attentive to appreciate and then to make sure that we reward the people you know, over time, whatever reward means in your organization, promotions, involvement, engagement, et cetera, et cetera, that we're doing it for people who share our values, not just who do good performance work, which is a very common problem out in the world. And what, what is it again? Because when you, you become very clear about your values, believe your principle, you work with them, you lift them every day, then you start to build culture. And there's so much that's been out in the recent years about the whole, you know, lack of engagement, fix the culture and so on. But what is great culture in, in your view and how do you actually start building that? Well, culture metaphorically in the ecosystem, as you know, I look at like the soil. So uh, it's any farmer will tell you, sustainable farmer, it's a long, slow, imperfect process. And you can't just build great soil on a farm in a week. It's not going to happen. Um, the vision, I would suggest, is a way of describing the culture you want, which is very helpful in, in people going in the right direction and doing the right work. Uh, the culture, I would suggest, uh, is built by any number of things. Uh, I think the more... Uh, we lead with positive beliefs. 
the healthier the culture. The more we bring kindness to work every day, the better. I think the vision helps the culture because people feel a part of something greater than themselves. Uh, the healthiest ecosystems in nature are the most diverse. So making the culture a place that welcomes diversity, you know, yes, of race, but also of age, gender, beliefs within the frame of what you're doing. So I, I, you know, here we write in our vision about diversity. So hiring somebody with uh, racist beliefs isn't going to work. And I'm not going to judge them as a human being for what they do, but it's, it's clearly a bad fit in the same way that somebody who wants to make frozen burger patties is a bad fit for what we do. It's there. I'm not, I'm going to hold them in high regard as a human regardless. But so those, those kinds of things all uh, make a big difference. Compassion, dignity, uh, good storytelling, because our stories, uh, I, I've come to understand the stories that we tell are basically a way of communicating what matters to us. So if we're telling stories of you know, how we, we saved everyone. It's not, it sounds good and it's what's in the movies, but it's actually unhealthy. Uh, having a culture where we honor people's emotion, like if somebody's mother's in the hospital or their dog died, like it's easy to dismiss it, but they're having a hard time. Uh, generosity, you know, good systems can help the culture enormously, better energy, uh, beauty in all walks of life. Uh, Bill Strickland is a guy in Pittsburgh who runs uh, schools in the inner city. And he talks a lot about how just putting flowers at the front counter made a big difference. And, and it may sound silly to people, but I think it makes a big difference in, in that context. So beauty in the, in the metaphor of the ecosystem I came to look at is gratitude because it's the good things are there. It's just whether we choose to pay attention enough and do the little extra thing like we talked about earlier to say something. So that was a long answer, but I think that's the point. There's a, everything that's happening is impacting the culture. Yeah, and it starts from the divisioning and the, the purpose and then it trickles down and exactly the positive intent you have to create, create a culture. And, and you need to, like you said before with the running, you need to really work hard on maintaining that. Yep. Yep, and I'm going to write probably next week uh, a little bit more about money, and I'm going to do it. I've been writing quite a bit about the revolution of dignity, which was sort of my struggle with how to respond emotionally uh, and then practically to what's happening in Ukraine, not like it's the only human tragedy in the world. There's clearly the same in Yemen or Ethiopia or around race. You know, we just had a horrible shooting in Buffalo in the U.S. last weekend. I mean, it's it's not the only place, but it's in my mind. And I studied Russian history, so I think I have a high emotional attachment. And uh, as I was struggling with, like, what do I do? I mean, I'm half, same thing you got. I'm halfway around the world. You're not halfway, but you're a quarter way around the world. I mean, I can donate some money, but, it, you know, when they need whatever, javelin missiles is my $100 really going to, you know, uh and I, in part, I started to realize like what we can do is do what we do. So in 2014 is when much of this, well, this situation with Russia and Ukraine goes back centuries. But in the modern moment, it's 2014 is when the Ukrainians threw out the Russian sponsored, let's say, president who was 
installed and it came to be called the revolution of dignity. And I realized if we create our own revolution of dignity, that that's probably the best thing we can do to preclude that sort of thing from happening. Uh, and so we, if we create workplaces where dignity is the rea is the daily reality and that's the norm, you don't get Vladimir Putin in power because that kind of rulership, whether it's in a restaurant or in, a, in Russia, is indignity, dehumanization, the individual is irrelevant, human life is irrelevant, beauty is irrelevant. And so if we create dignity, it, it works. And I started to realize like in the context of money, like dignity compounds too, right? Because everything I read about money, just as my homework for the e-news, says what you already probably know like it's not about some like we've been trained again to look for this magical stock investment that's going to make us rich but the reality is and i wouldn't have known this but even warren buffett the famous american investor and he's like yeah he's a good investor but the biggest thing is he started when he was like 11 and he's now 90. so it's it's more that he's been investing for 80 years and yes his decisions were good but here they give an example of another guy who's made even better decisions, but he didn't start till he was 50. And his financial wealth pales in comparison to Warren Buffett because he has 50, 40 years less practice at it. So uh, I think with dignity, it's the same thing. And if we create an organization with years and years of multiple examples of dignity being lived every day, it becomes a long-term healthy organization. Yeah, it's a very, very strong word, dignity, because I think a lot of people, that's that's the baseline, what they're looking for. And if you can give them that at work, you have created a very unique place in, in, in the world of work we live in today. You mentioned systems and operational standards before. It was very important for building culture. And often people think, what? Oh, well, that's the hard stuff. You know, that's the recipes. That's the... Uh, you know, instructions, that's how we do things around here, and then the checkboxes. Why is that so important to, to have very good system? Well, the systems give us the structure within which we are more likely to succeed. Uh, and good systems can save a lot of aggravation because if the system is well-designed, it will lead people to a good outcome. It saves I mean, in the lean world, it saves waste, it saves drama, it saves a lot of aggravation. So if we have a, I mean, part of what tends to happen with small restaurants is you and I are cooking. I don't need to write it down. <laughs> I know how to make it. Well, when you have 20 cooks, if it's not well documented, that's a, and that's a system. And, and it's a poorly written recipe, which is quite common. And it might say a half in, in our world, a half pound of onion chopped is different than a half pound of chopped onion. Right. So if you those kind of inaccuracies in the system or in the writing can create problems, because if we write one onion chopped or one pound, you know, like, well, one onion can be this big this week and this big the next week. If we don't do it right, then the dish is inconsistent. Now the dish is inconsistent. The customer's experience is inconsistent. Then the customer's getting upset. Then the manager has to go talk to the customer. Then the customer might stop coming back or we're comping their meal. And all of this could have started with the way that we wrote uh, 
the recipe. So good systems work can really make things go better. There's an essay in the part one of the book, which you have in front of you about systems, which uh, was work that I adapted from something I read in Harvard Business Review many years ago that really helped me. Uh, And they talk about uh, broken systems, which is where they're not working at all. Uh, They talk about where there's uh, like mass uh, or what I would call industrial systems. So this is super helpful in our mail order, right? Where you're packing thousands of boxes in a day. Like it's not I'm not, we're not looking for the creative placement of the product by each person who packs it. Like when your family gets the same box a year from now, it should look the same. Then there's systems that, uh, I forget exactly what the title is in there, but we're, we're basically, it's taking a craft product like we have at the bakehouse and it's taking the inevitable daily variation in artisan bread, let's say, and turning that into a benefit. So instead of people who are used to buying packaged bread at the supermarket going, well, this is terrible. Look at it. It's not exactly like yesterday. You're saying, no, this is the beauty of it. Just like each flower is different, whatever. And, and the fourth one is basically what I would call craft systems. And that's like customer service. Like what you want on Monday is not what you want on Tuesday. So if I were to mismatch the type of system and I put a factory system into customer service, you're going to end up with the kind of rote, impersonal, ineffective, scripted service responses that you get in chain places where you, you're like, hey, I know this is what's on the menu, but, you know, my cousin's here and he's and they're like, I'm sorry, sir, we can't do that. Yeah, and I guess, the, and then you don't get what you have built, like this fostering community of, I would call them raving fans all over the world that has some kind of connection, even though they had never been to your, maybe to your place, which I think is really interesting. They maybe even had never bought anything from you, but they have like a positive association with Singerman's and think, and believe that's a great place for, for food or being employed. Well, that's a wonderful thing. Thank you. A couple of more questions I'll ask you here and then what has like been, you know, your most significant learnings the last two years of, uh, when it comes to building a, a great company? Well, I, I wrote a pamphlet on that too, because uh, <laughs> writing helps me process all this stuff. Um, I guess I learned in a lot of ways that what we were already doing works. So there's been a million conversations about pivoting and changing this and changing that. And that's all true. But I guess what I've come to focus on is like what I want to really look at here is how much didn't change. Because we continued to practice open book management, which was huge. Like we furloughed 275 people. It was terrible. But people understand the finance, so they're not like, oh, you guys have all this money. Like, they see what's going to happen. They know what the loan payments are. They can do the math. I mean, it's, you know, uh, visioning works. Like, we know where we're going. And even if we experienced, in quotes, an earthquake in the context of the pandemic, we still know what we need to do. Just and, and again, not to dwell on Ukraine, but this is what's happening there too, is people are creating a vision in the context of the war. And it's, re, it's, it's remarkable to me, like in the middle of all of this horror and what's happening, they're talking about rebuilding already. And, and 
a friend of mine was telling me that she had read a thing with a built with a designer over there who said, well, we've been advocating for this uh, renovation of the city center and now it's going to be easier because the Russians destroyed it all. Like, I mean, just to have that mindset is remarkable. Uh, so all of the things that we were doing worked and that healthier organizations have healthier immune systems so they're more resilient and people can continue to collaborate even through the chaos, which isn't true in an unhealthy organization. People start blaming and they're all mad at each other and the company's screwing us and they have a lot of negative beliefs. And, you know, it's not like tension didn't go up here. It went up for everybody and it's still not that low, but people had years of practice of how to have difficult conversations, years of practice of figuring out how to respond and think like leaders and not wait for this magical boss to tell them what to do. And, people knew how to give great customer service. And so now you had to do it with masks on and stand farther away, but it really wasn't any different. I mean, it's just adapting to the current, you know, criteria. So I think that's the biggest things really that I learned is, is that what we were doing works and it was harder to do it during the pandemic, but my friend Anise Kavanaugh, who I think I mentioned to you, taught us the energy stuff. Told me earlier, early on in the in the thing, I was at the uh, on the phone with her, and we were talking, and she said, "You know, the relationships that are working well, organizations that are working well, will become stronger, and the ones that were already not good will fall apart." And I. I think you can see that in everything from, I feel bad, but the countless businesses that closed, uh, I feel bad, but you can see it in American politics. <laughs> uh, well, it wasn't working well before. And then the stress of the pandemic, like what you see in Ukraine, and I'm not saying Ukraine's the greatest thing. They have a lot of issues with, you know, uh, bureaucracy or with bribery or whatever, but what you see is them coming together under duress instead of like, they could be yelling at each other and it's remarkable. Like you have musicians going into the army who probably I, like you and me would never have thought of going into the army. Uh, and, and, and just the amount of coming together is incredible. And again, I, I'm not, this is it's a good example for me in a way that's not about you and me that i can see what can happen and and so what you see with the russian army is the opposite like stories of soldiers shooting themselves in the leg to get away this is where you have people driving seven hours who've never touched a gun to go get trained to defend their country i mean it's it's uncanny yeah, the thing is very interesting as well. One of the things you said before as well, and we will not dive into that, you talked about open book management, that total transparency about how are the the health of the organization financially and actually not being afraid to share that. I've seen that in other conversations as well. It'll be very, very key. But before we, we stop here, Ari, there's like, is there one question you wish I've asked you about uh, when we talk about you know uh, building a great organization and, and what would have it been? And what would you have answered? Wow, I don't know. There's so many because there's not just one. But uh, I don't know. I think the best thing is let's just continue the conversation. I mean, I, I'm sure you'll put in your 
list all the resources. And my email, as you know, is ariatzingermans.com. And I'm happy to converse with anybody directly. And then uh, with the books, we're off the grid. So we basically do farm to table version of, of public of publishing. So we do all the design, print them locally here in town. And we try to stay off of Amazon, which and one of the natural laws is strengths lead to weaknesses. So I really like that. But one of the downsides is for people in Europe, it's harder to get them uh, because for whatever insanity of the postal system, it costs a ton of money to ship something to England when I don't know why, since the plane isn't going much farther than it goes to San Francisco. But uh, but anyway, but we're happy to try to get them to people and we have them on PDFs and stuff too, so people can do it that way. Uh, but the new pamphlet just came out and it is, you know, to all your good questions about visioning, a little bit about what we learned. And it's, it's a really powerful process. I guess I'll close with this. That really changed my life and I'm not exaggerating. And that without which I think to your initial questions, we would not be sitting here 40 years later doing what we're doing. And I, I wrote this in the pamphlet. If we didn't have visioning, it's highly likely we would have sold the company. We would have ended up with me and Paul having added so much we couldn't stand it anymore and we broke up the relationship, the partnership, whatever. Uh, it's highly likely we would have just opened more units. It's highly likely we might have gone public like people I know who went public because there's so much money that you can't turn it down. Uh, you know, it's, it's, so it's, it's not like we would have loved that, but it's just hard to not follow the path that your parents follow or your peers follow or the press tells you to follow unless you have something in your heart and your head that's clear. And having it written makes it so much easier to turn down those offers, which in theory are good, but really are, are not aligned with what you want to create, right? And in the same way that people regularly take jobs with organizations they don't love because the money's really good and they think it'll be okay, but it degrades your spirit, you know? And I, I know it's easy for me to say sitting where I am, but, and I'm not saying people should never make that trade-off. We all make trade-offs, but the reality is it's it it ends up uh, eroding your spirit and eroding who you are and eroding your passion for life when you're not pursuing what you really want. And uh, I'll close uh, Thelonious Monk, the American jazz musician, uh, early 20th century, uh, said a genius is a person most like himself. And I think the visioning allows us as organizations to be the most like ourselves and that that's really where the power is because when you're working at something you truly believe in, it doesn't mean it all goes well. We screw up daily. But just like whatever, a social change leader, a musician, a parent that really believes in what they're doing, they're going to stick with it long after the glamour is gone. Whereas if you have a job you don't really like but the pay's great, you will do the opposite of what's on those 12 natural laws. And in the long run, your spirit is diminished and the other organization doesn't do well either. So that's a very, very beautiful way of uh, taking that question. I actually finished this conversation because I think that, that lots of people who listen to this show are founders and business owners, and they often end up in feeling unfilled because they probably either don't have the vision or lost the vision and need to come back to it. So Thank you so much for, for making that really clear here in the end, Ari. And thank you for coming on the show again and talk about building a great business. I I hope and I'm sure we will 
have other conversations in the future. We're sending uh, you and the team at Singerman's Power and Energy for, for the period ahead, and thanks. Thank you, Michael. It's great to see you and great to talk, and I look forward to doing it again. Wow, Ari. That was an incredible conversation, and thank you so much for the great overview on how you at Singerman's are building a great business. If you want to learn more about how you build a great business, please also tune in to episode number 134 with David Lockwood, MD of Neil's Yard Dairy, on having a 10-year plan. I really appreciate that you're listening in. And if you enjoyed today's conversation, please share, rate, review, or subscribe to one of our channels. It all can be done via the website hospitalitymavericks.com. And if you have any ideas or feedback on how the show can get better or thoughts, just reach out on LinkedIn or via my email at michael at hospitalitymavericks.com. A big thank you to BizSimply for supporting us, bringing great insights, strategies, and tools to help the industry thrive, not just survive. Check them out at bizsimply.com or via their socials, bizsimply or bizsimplyhq. You can also email them directly at advice at bizsimply.com. A big thank you to Fina Charlson, the show producer and editor from the Podcast Collective. Tune in next time for another interview. And in the meantime, find out more about us and subscribe to the newsletter for more Maverick Insights at hospitalitymavericks.com. And don't worry, if you didn't get all of this, there will be links in the show notes. I'm Michael Tingsam, and you've been listening to the Hospitality Maverick Podcast Show. Be Maverick!